Have you ever wondered how the separate threads of your life fit in to one big picture? How the individual moments of challenge and triumph connect to one another to form the great meaning of your life? I am Anna Mullins, your Life Story Editor, and I'm convinced that making sense of our deepest pain can help us understand our deepest purpose. In my speaker training program and on this podcast, I help people weave together those confusing, often shameful pieces of their past, revealing the life-changing lessons that create their profound new story. Welcome to Unapologetic Stories, where secrets are out and the truth is in. storytellers. I am so excited about this week's guest for a number of reasons. We are going to touch on some very deep and also sometimes difficult topics, which is sort of what I love to do because part of destigmatizing anything is actually talking about it. And my guest today is just a perfect example of somebody who can not only write through grief and trauma, but speak through it. And I am honored to have her here on the podcast on this stage she is alex schneider she is an author a speaker and an advocate from the west coast of bc alex's debut memoir dragonfly tides explores her adolescent experience of trauma grief and her journey of finding hope after the unthinkable has happened Now, I'm just going to kick it off just like this. First of all, welcome, Alex. Hi, thank you for having me here. I'm so excited to be a part of this and to get to talk to you today. Oh, the honor is absolutely mine. And before I kind of ramble on, as I tend to do, I really, because your bio is just so succinct and so powerful, and it leaves us with this question of what is the unthinkable? What is Alex's story? Can you start us off there or just kind of guide us through who is Alex and what brought you to this story? Absolutely. Um, So my story starts out like most bars do. Um, I was 16. I was worried about school and boys and finding my place in the world, managing bullies at school, um, finding how I fit into a new family, being in a blended family. Um, after parents had separated several years earlier. And overall, I felt like I was in a really good place. But when I was 16 years old, my entire world changed. So my parents, who had divorced when I was young, eventually had both met and married new partners. So Trevor was my stepfather, and he was kind, warm, and funny. He cared about the people around him, and he just genuinely made you feel good and welcome when you came to visit our house and at family gatherings. And I was really grateful for this new family um, that my mom and I had built um, after things being so hard for so long. However, in 2009, over a three-month period, Trevor started developing mental health issues. He went from being the kind, funny, lighthearted guy who we loved so much to someone who was struggling with severe paranoia hallucinations and delusions. Wow. Um, And on Remembrance Day 2009, my stepfather, in the midst of a severe episode of psychosis, shot and killed my mother. (gasps) I was in the house at the time, and I will never forget the sound of the rifle going off in the other room. I bet. Uh, And my life changed forever that morning. Anyone who has gone through serious trauma understands how you are never the same person after something like that happens and after you have a traumatic loss or um, a serious event or um, violence in your life it it never um, things never go back to normal you know sometimes they talk about a new normal after trauma and the reality is you are going to be rebuilding your life and the relationships around you and going on a completely unexpected journey to try to find hope again after things like that have happened and completely changed the entire trajectory of your life. 
No doubt. Yeah. And um, thank you for sharing that, by the way. I know that's not an easy story to get through. And having to retell that at all is very, very difficult. And you have now even turned this into a book where you can kind of read about your journey with trauma. But I'm interested to, if we go back into this moment, the way that you describe life, it's like life is just moving along for Mm -hmm. you as a teenager, like any average teenager just worried about school, worried about homework, worried about who knows what, friends and boys and and the Mm -hmm. typical wonderings of being a teenager. And yet I'm curious, did you start to see at that age, it just feels like there's such a wisdom in you. Did you start to see the mental health things begin to arise? Did you notice it at that time? Or are you only now as an adult reflecting back and saying, ah, there was changes happening in the personality here of your stepfather? It was very, very clear um, to everyone who knew him. And uh, even at 16, it was it was devastatingly clear to know that um, somebody you love was struggling. And um, that's kind of how my mom and I really approached it is both and neither of us knew much about mental health at that point, much less serious mental health, like experiencing hallucinations and delusions. Um, neither of us knew how to support him. We called um, his family doctor and um, I say we, but obviously my mom took care of it. And I just um, kind of watched from the sidelines as this life that I had grown to be so grateful for just kind of felt like a rug was being pulled out from under me. Right. Uh, I'm just watching my stepfather who, you know, for all intents and purposes had been my dad for the last six years, um, who just wasn't himself anymore. And we didn't know if he was going to get better and we didn't know what the next few years of our lives were going to look like. And we didn't know what was going to happen to him. And the fact that um, most of the time, like that's one of the things about my story that's really hard. There's a lot of gray area. Um, is that mental health most often doesn't end up with people being violent or hurting others. Nine times out of 10, it's people with mental health issues who actually end up being the victims of um, crime or violence or abuse rather than the other way around. Um, so it's it's hard when you have a story that is so gray and isn't black and white. And um, I really struggled for many years in finding out like, what is my message? What's my story? What do I want people to get out of this when um, it's so messy and doesn't necessarily help the mental health community to be sharing this experience? Okay, that's so interesting, Alex, that you're almost stuck with this story because you feel like a greater sense of responsibility I'm hearing, maybe Mm -hmm. to protect the mental health side of the story, even though you were in this position of such unthinkable victimization. It's, it's quite profound, actually, when I think about it. And I'm interested when you say, um, I think how you phrased it was like wondering what your message is, or what the message is, there's a lot of times, especially in the trauma dialogue, where we kind of contemplate, does this have to mean something? Mm -hmm. Is there a message in this? Is there um, kind of a light at the end of the tunnel? Is there, you know, when people say, what's that? What's that saying? I'm sure I'm going to botch it all up now, but, um, oh, everything happens for a reason. Yes. That horrendous thing that people who have trauma are like, (laughs) uh, I don't, I don't think I asked for this actually. And I don't know that there's a particular reason for this. Can you talk to me about that? I mean, I I don't know that there's a necessarily a right Mm -hmm. answer here, but how do you reconcile that as somebody who experienced unthinkable trauma and having to find a message somehow in that? I think for me personally, um, I don't necessarily feel that this happened for a reason. And if it did, um, I think the reason is garbage. (laughs) And um, it's kind of like every single Disney movie always has a dead mom. And uh, I would really love if the universe could stop using that as a character development ploy. Um, Because I would really like to have my mom here and just be learning lessons in some other way instead of this godforsaken opportunity that was thrown at me um and uh yeah so I definitely don't feel like everything happens for a reason I wish it did um but at the end of the day there was absolutely no way I was going to be able to work through this loss and this amount of pain if I didn't make it mean something 
Okay. So interesting. And I happen to agree with you actually, because when the volume of the grief, when the volume of the pain is so big, sometimes we're sort of left with no choice. And I battle constantly around this. And I agree with literally everything you just said. In fact, I hadn't ever identified the Disney movie thing. (laughs) (laughs) When you see it, you will never unsee it. (laughs) Never unsee. I'm like, my brain is actually like doing this Rolodex thing of like going back through all the Disney movies and thinking, yeah, what is it about that character development is some yeah. the absence of of the you know princess having to find herself i guess what the heck mm-hmm. right? what a strange thing what a, interesting piece of wisdom that you've delivered me today alex i love <laughs> i love well, I, random facts i always like to say either i'm a disney princess or batman and uh <laughs> i can live with either of those things <laughs> or both <laughs> i'll make it work <laughs> I'm, I'm into the idea of both. Um, okay. I am really like, I'm having this moment though, honestly, where I'm thinking, yeah, this feels really true. It's like, we don't, we, we really want to obviously escape this toxic positivity thing where we're like, mm-hmm. everything happens for a reason and just accept these negative things that happen to you in your life and move through it and move on and learn something from it. But in a way it's almost becomes your survival, like mm-hmm. but for turning this pain into some sort of purpose where does one even go when it comes to trauma that is this big and this profound? I mean, that question is something it sounds like you've probably investigated mm-hmm. for many years and not one that came to you overnight, certainly. But take me back to the moments, because you were in the house at the time that this yes. event occurred, yes. correct? Do you have a memory of that at that time? Oh, if, yeah, I. that is the to the day I die, that is going to be the clearest memory that I will ever have for my entire life. I will never forget that. Um, so that morning, um, obviously, the gunshot went off. And um, I mean, if you've ever been around um, hunting rifles, you you know how loud they are and how much that sound rings in your ears. And I swear it felt like for half an hour, the sound was still in my head. Um, and my stepfather actually came out of their bedroom he ushered me into the car he was like hey we need to pack up we need to go and the one amazing thing about your brain is that it really tries to protect you so even though there was a smoking rifle on our kitchen island um, my stepfather was a hunter so that was something that was stored in our home that wasn't shocking or unexpected at all Um, but seeing the gun sitting there, having him come out of the bedroom, having me need to get into the car, even though all these pieces clearly fit together as I know what just happened here, um, your my brain actually didn't allow me to connect those pieces together. So um, I knew something had happened. I thought because of the paranoia he was experiencing, um, for months he had been thinking that people were watching the house or in the house, going through papers, poisoning food, like really serious um, mental health issues. And uh, so I had just kind of, for some reason, my brain was like, oh, he's shooting out on the street. Like, that's just kind of where my brain went with it. Um, So I was driven to my grandparents' house, which is about 20 minutes away from our home. By him? By your stepfather? Yeah. Yes. And I sat in the front seat and I had all these questions coming to mind and I just desperately wanted to know what was happening, what was wrong, where's my mom. I just wanted to call her and figure out what was going on. And um, even though it was all so clear, my brain would not process that piece of information. Um, So eventually I was dropped off at my grandparents' home and uh, my step-grandmother was there and she... um, you know, did the best she could to take care of me in that moment. And okay, let's get a bit of food into you. You know, I wanted to call my mom and and the phone rang, but nobody answered. Um, The house phone went straight to voicemail. And um, it just, you know, this went on for probably about probably about an hour of um, just trying to manage this, um, these unknowns that we didn't know what was happening. And, um, my stepfather had driven away and blah, 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 blah. We didn't know where he was. And, um, just, just an absolute, um, like you never, I will never lose those memories. And I will never forget the feeling of sitting there, um, munching on peanut butter toast, trying to get a bit of food into my stomach while being completely, um, lost on what was happening. 
Yeah, it's interesting that the role of memory, and I use that word kind of like um, in quotation marks, it's like, do you have a memory of this? It's like, yes and no, which mm-hmm. is what trauma does. As you said, it's like this protective mechanism of mm-hmm. I know, but I don't know as we sort of transcend the experience in some way. And I'm presuming your grandmother would have had no idea at that point in time what had happened or what she was dealing with. She, um, her brain (laughs) didn't protect her quite in the way that mine did. So she was pretty sure she knew what had happened. Um, But it wasn't actually clear to me until my grandfather um, came through the front door with two police officers with him. And then this truth that my brain had worked so hard to protect me from that morning, just so I could get out of that situation and stay safe. Um, All the walls came down and I absolutely fell apart and I knew that my mom was gone and I had no idea how I was going to ever be able to move on from this. And I, I just feel like my brain like flashed forward to, well, I'm not going to be able to graduate high school. I'm never going to go to university. I don't know how I'm going to ever hold down a job or um, find joy in the world again after this. Like after you lose your best friend and my mom and I were super close um, for years growing up. And um, I, I just, I didn't know where you go from this. Like how can somebody possibly recover from something so horrific happening to them so young I I just I I collapsed and I just thought well this is it I don't I don't know where you can go from here wow you are just an incredible human Alex like even as you tell this story now I think the way that you articulate the experience of trauma is incredibly profound and if anyone out there has already read your book they probably know that anyway that you write so beautifully you add words to this ridiculously complex scenario and topic. And you said, how does one kind of move on? You have this moment where you're collapsing going, what am I going to do? Graduate high school. That's so typical, isn't it? It's just like, it's exactly what happens in trauma. It's like what you fast forward to everything in the future and everything into the, in the past, all at the same time. It's Mm -hmm. mind boggling, really mind boggling what the brain can do to protect us, as you say, and to prepare us in some way. Tell me how you did move through this. How did you eventually move through? One second at a time. And I mean, they they say you you work through things one day at a time, right? And I'm like, sometimes one day is too big. Mm -hmm. Even one hour at a time feels too much. So if all you can literally do is breathe in and breathe out and just literally focus on one breath, one second at a time, something, sometimes that's all you have to work through these things. And then all of a sudden it's two, three days later and you know, and then it's a week out and then you realize that you've laughed about something again for the first time. And, and, um, you know, all of a sudden, okay, well now I feel like I can eat again and now I'm starting to sleep a little bit better. And I, you know, I've, I've been asked that a few times over the years now is like, how did you make it through that? And I wish I had better answers, but it literally is one second, one breath at a time until it doesn't hurt so much to, exist anymore and to carry this with you and and just having hope that um, one day it won't hurt so much anymore and that you're not alone in this and whatever you're feeling or whatever symptoms you're experiencing because there's so many body symptoms that come from trauma um, that it's not a personal shortcoming it's literally how our bodies um, react to um, violence and and stress and extreme loss yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. You just said, I wish I could say it better. And I'm like, I don't think you could possibly have said that better. <laughs> I, I will remember that forever, actually, just second by second. Yeah. Sometimes a day is too much. Second by second. That's there's a really, really incredible wisdom there. I am deeply curious as you talk about the experience of trauma in the body and these symptoms that you say show up in the body, because we, mm-hmm. we kind of can conceive of them in the mind in some way, but Talk to me about your experience with trauma in the body. How did that show up for you? And what might somebody listening say, oh, I, I identify with that. Give yeah. them that experience of maybe they're not alone. Um, one of the big things that I experienced, um, two of the big ones that come to mind right away are brain fog and nightmares. So the first one, brain fog. Um, it sounds so um, silly, but it really, truly after my mom passed away, 
I had struggle, struggled to put words together. Um, so having to carry on a conversation with somebody and actually find the next word that I was trying to say, um, I, I moved from being somebody who could talk and write and just flow through things really quickly. Um, I was a straight A student. Um, I performed very well academically. And then carry on, carrying on a conversation with someone in front of me was difficult in the day or two afterwards. And unfortunately, that's actually one symptom that's really hung around for me. So when I get stressed or in a situation where it feels like there's a lot on the line, hint, hint, like these <laughs> podcasts, <laughs> um, all of a sudden I have to really, really concentrate on what I'm saying to actually come up with the words. Otherwise, there's long pauses and breaks, and it just feels like my brain needs more time to buffer or process. It's like watching a YouTube video in like 2008 with dial-up internet. Um, so that was one thing that I experienced, and that was really hard, is that I felt um, stupid. I, For lack of a better word, I felt like I lost some of my intellectual abilities um, after my mom passed away, because just carrying on a conversation with someone right in front of me, one-on-one, -on -one, was so difficult. And that's something that it probably was about eight or nine months um, after my mom passed away that I actually learned in a support group where I described this feeling and the facilitator looks at me and goes, yeah, that's brain fog. That's completely common with trauma and grief yeah. and extreme stress on the body. And it changed everything for me when I realized it's not that something is wrong with me. It's that my body is processing a lot of pain right now. Yeah, I love that you added that. I mean, I've said this on a podcast actually very recently, I think, potentially, um, that brain fog for me and being able to actually grab at a word in the air and like launch it into a conversation and have this like engagement is one of the core symptoms that I dealt with with my own personal trauma mm -hmm. and the experience of kind of the aftermath of trauma, which for me was depression which is mm -hmm. usually something that goes hand in hand. I relate to that so much the way that you articulate that. It's like you have this moment where you go, have I actually lost my brain forever? Yes. It's gone. <laughs> yeah. Can I ever get it back? And uh, just the craziness of knowing what you want to say and having this like vision for what you want this exact this podcast or this experience or this book to mm -hmm. mean and what you want it to say and not being able to do that I think can be emotionally quite crushing for somebody mm -hmm. who is sounds like as high performing as you were yeah and and it doesn't help either because anyone who um is like academically gifted I'm using air quotes around that but you know what I mean um, that, that those kind of people, we put so much of our identity and our worth into our performance and what we bring to the table, um, as far as what we do academically or at our jobs. And that was a really, really hard piece to kind of lose or become disconnected from, and then having to find my worth and meaning in my life from other places when that was not the the norm for me anymore and that's also why being able to write this book was so cathartic and meant so much to me because I could take all the time in the world to find the right words and to um, say exactly what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it and um, yeah without losing my place or being interrupted or being misunderstood um, or misdirected in a conversation and you know how we oh I really mean I really really want to talk about this and then you get started on something else and then you lose your place and um, yeah just being able to say exactly what I wanted to say in the book was so so helpful. I bet I'm gonna kind of I, I want to just open this up I'm gonna take a little bit of a left turn here because you just sort of spark something in me which is just this feeling of being misunderstood Mm -hmm. in your journey and then you talked about actually a support group and you talked about um not feeling alone was there a moment for you where you sat with somebody else who had been through a similar experience I mean this is such a unique experience Alex it's not something that you walk down the street and you meet five or ten people a day that have had the experience that you've had and I say this very cautiously but was it difficult for you to find kind of common experience to really move through your therapy and your trauma healing with? Because I just, I'm having this feeling in my heart as I'm asking this question, which is, was there, there must've been just so much loneliness in that. I think that's the perfect word for it. Um, in moments like that, after you've experienced such serious loss, you're looking for connection. 
and for people to be able to lean on and trust and share and be open with about and you know it'd be really nice to have people who understood as well and that was something that was really really hard I was a part of several teen grief support groups um, in the year or two after my mom passed away while I was still in high school and the support groups were amazing. I loved them. And I still to this day have, um, you know, I exchange messages with people who I met there and we still offer support to one another when we're having a hard time. And um, while I'm so grateful for that, it was so hard going through them. Being around other people who had lost loved ones in, again, using air quotes, natural ways. So not involving another person's hand, for instance. Um, and there's also not a whole lot of um, people who lost moms in support groups. Um, there was a lot of people who had lost their dads. And um, that was a different experience that, you know, I didn't necessarily relate to in that moment. Um, and uh, so there was there was all these people who had lost grandmothers and fathers and um you know, I was sitting there going, but I lost my mom to homicide. Like, how do I, how do I reconcile that? How do I move through this in a, you know, the typical way that we grieve and grieving is supposed to be a natural experience and a natural part of life. Um, you know, people getting old and sick and, um, as much as it's sad, it is a part of the human experience and it makes our lives even richer when we know their time here is temporary. Um, but you never expect to lose somebody at 41 years old while they're sleeping. Like, it's just, you know, you're, you're supposed to be safe in your home. And, um, still to this day, I, I struggle with that. And, um, yeah, it was, it was very hard in groups to also not feel, to be perfectly honest, to not feel like I was, um, taking over. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we would go around the circle and we'd, it'd be day one and we'd share the, like, you know, initial abstract of our experience, right? And uh, these poor kids would be talking about their loss and how hard it was and, you know, watching their grandparent get sick. And um, and I can't imagine how hard that would be. And then it comes around to me and I'm like, oh God, well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How, how, do I, how do I tell my story in a way that lets people know that um, I'm here as a peer, mm. but I also don't, there's such a, the only way to explain it is that people tend to um, other me a little bit, it feels, okay. or that I feel like my trauma is put on a pedestal in a way that I'm not comfortable with. Um, because the reality is trauma is trauma. Whether you drown in six feet of water or 16, it doesn't matter. It's the same pain. Yeah. It's the same loss. And um, it was honestly uncomfortable sometimes because Um, I didn't want to take away from what anyone else was going through because they would start their shares like that of, oh, well, you know, it's not as bad as Alex's. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm here for. I'm here to provide support and receive support, but not to compare or um, judge or anything else that, you know, people tend to automatically do when they they hear my story. Isn't that funny? And it goes, it really does go both ways too, as I'm listening to this, I'm kind of, again, I'm having a light bulb moment, which I do often in conversation with you is that, and you and I have talked about this before that this kind of big T, little T thing, big yes. T trauma, little T trauma. And yes. I know that you just vehemently disagree with having to like sort of put T, put trauma on some kind of hierarchical, hierarchical there. <laughs> I can't even articulate <laughs> that hierarchy in this structure where we have this like ladder of mm-hmm. my trauma is worse than your trauma, or my trauma is not as bad as your trauma. And it's so funny. Cause what comes up to me is like, it's not funny, funny. It's ironic in the sense that mm-hmm. people who have small T trauma and maybe are just coming to that recognition. So I'm putting that in quotation, small T, by the way small t trauma versus complex trauma, um, there's almost a shame in owning that you're in pain or there's almost a shame Mm -hmm. in coming out and saying, this is really a lot of pain for me. This is really holding me back. This is causing me brain fog. This is destroying my life. I can't get through the grief or I can't seem to cope with it. 
because we listen to stories that feel more traumatic and then we sort of belittle our trauma experience mm -hmm. in a way. So, and then the opposite I'm hearing from you is true as well, which is people who would traditionally be def defined as having big T or complex PTSD mm -hmm. are saying, we just want to feel like we're having the same conversation you're having on the same plane, talking about the yeah. same pain, feeling like we aren't being othered and yeah, what a complex conversation. I don't know where I'm going with this. I have no answer to this topic at all. Totally. I just felt like I needed to say it out loud. Yeah, I don't I don't feel like putting it in boxes helps anybody right. um, or ranking it because quite frankly, then you're not getting the support you need with a, you know, quote unquote, small T. Right. Because um, you're not then feeling heard or that your feelings matter regardless of what's causing them. Um, and then quite frankly, I don't think it helps us big T people either, because if you're having trouble moving through your trauma, which you are viewing or perceiving as smaller than ours, how the hell are we supposed to get through our stuff? Yeah. How are we supposed to carry this around huh. if, yeah. if it's, you know, everybody's looking at us going, oh, I don't know how you're doing that. It's like, well, neither <laughs> <do> I. <laughs> I said, um, <laughs> My sister has been through some stuff in her life, <clears throat> lots of big stuff. And uh, I remember saying to her once several years ago, I just don't know how you do it. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you do it. And I don't think I could do it. And she said, well, you could be, or you would, because you yeah. just would have to. Like, what would be, what choice would you have? If What's the alternative? Exactly. What would be the alternative? If this was your experience, you would also do the things that you needed to do to survive everyone will just kind of default to those survival mechanisms yeah. for yeah. the most part. And I think that's maybe what I'm trying to say here is it's like at some point or another, we have differentiating experiences. Of course, we have unique experiences and those stories, those experiences do need to be heard. They do need to be held. They do need to be understood um, in varying degrees and in varying places, safe places but there are connective forces that make us all human in our mm -hmm. pain and in our grief and in our trauma. And one of the things that really unites us is being able to actually talk about them and actually yes. share what that feels like. And I am kind of doing a very awkward segue here, but I really want to talk about your book because you sort of went the distance. You spent years doing your personal healing work. And mm -hmm. in that time, if you feel safe, kind of introducing some of this conversation as well, you were also dealing with the trial. There was a, a criminal process that took place for you after this. It didn't just end in one moment. And then you went to therapy and started your healing journey. There was so much more layered on here that had mm -hmm. to do with the court system and the media, et cetera. Um, take us through that journey from the peanut butter toast all the way to Alex writing a book. Like what was that experience for you to get to this place where it ended up in paperback? Mm -hmm. uh, well, that journey definitely, it took about a decade um, to go from <laughs> peanut butter toast. I love that wording. <laughs> um, all the way to finally having the strength and feeling like I was at the right place to be able to start to tell my story. The reason um, it took so long wasn't because I wasn't ready per se um, to write because I had grown up writing and being an author was actually always my plan and what I was working towards. And um, so I just expected to be writing fiction and I didn't foresee that I would be, my debut novel would be telling the story of my own life and um, what it was like losing my mom and the re-traumatizations that happened afterwards and how it affected every single area of my life. Um, it was actually more that I wanted to tell the story in a way that was fair to the people around me. Hmm. So um, as you can imagine, I was a very angry, traumatized, lost 16-year-old um, girl. And I didn't feel that that was the place that I wanted to write the story from because the reality is, um, although my story is my story and it will always belong to me, it does involve a lot of other people. Um, other people who were present in my life at the time and who came into my life in later years, um, people who I relied on for support that perhaps weren't the safest people to do that with. 
um, the friendships that were affected along the way, um, what it was like with my parents and my guardians. Um, it, it's not just about me. Um, and it's not just, it doesn't just affect me. So being able to tell the story from a place of um, forgiveness and understanding and wanting to better understand myself and the people around me and how events made me feel and how they shaped me rather than writing the book out of straight pain or revenge or wanting to hurt others. That was never my intention and it was never something that I wanted to do. Um, so I'm really grateful that I took all the time I did before I actually started writing. Hmm. That's really interesting. And you mentioned forgiveness. Has there been forgiveness? Oh, forgiveness is a messy, difficult term. <laughs> I bet. I bet. I'm going to throw that in there. Um, forgiveness is so difficult because I feel like it comes and goes. Okay. So in the early days, um, after I lost my mom, um, I had to come to terms with understanding mental health and understanding that my stepfather was not himself. He was not the one who made those decisions. And, um, shockingly, that was actually one of the easiest pieces of forgiveness for me to come to. Um, once you start to understand mental health, um, realizing that if somebody is experiencing hallucinations and they're seeing things that aren't there or they're experiencing delusions and having beliefs or thoughts that aren't, you know, accurate to reality, um, it becomes a lot harder to hold somebody accountable for what they do when they're experiencing a very serious psychotic break. Right. Um, they he was not in control. He was not making those decisions. He did not choose to hurt my mom. And um, probably about the year and a half mark, I actually went to see him. Um, he was at Colony Farm in Coquitlam, which is a forensic psychiatric facility. So that means that everyone who is there is being treated for mental health issues, but they have committed crimes as a result of those mental health issues. Okay. So, um, yeah, that's where I spent 12th grade. <laughs> uh, my senior year was so much fun <laughs> um, of visiting that place, seeing him for the first time. And um, I mean, I write about it in the book, but um, when he, I was so nervous. And then he walked through those doors and it was like the past year and a half had never happened. And I just ran up to the guy who had been my dad for six years, um, gave him a huge hug. I was immediately in tears and I had just missed him so much because I hadn't seen him since the day that he dropped me off at my grandparents. Wow. And um, it was, it was such an overwhelming emotion. And by that time I had already written him a letter or two and just explained that um, I was at a point where I had, I understood what had happened and not that I was okay with it. Um, obviously experiencing a ton of pain, um, panic attacks, nightmares, PTSD very much um, was a thing in my life then. It still is to this day. Mm -hmm. um, but that I understood that he hadn't made those decisions. So um, at that point in my life, the healing I needed was to go see him. And um, I visited him twice while he was at Colony Farm. And um, that really helped me to move through the um, pain that I was feeling at that time. Um, but it got a little complicated in the years after that, as, um, as more time went on, I realized how much an impact this trauma was having on my life from, um, you know, not being able to finish my degree in university. Um, to struggling to hold down a job and just getting up to go to work every day was really, really hard. And um, again, I still struggle with this to this day. And um, it scares me long term because I, um, while I've been able to make big strides in my life with my mental health and um, relationships and trusting others and um, managing a lot of the depression and anxiety that comes with trauma. Um, I still struggle with those like adulty tasks and responsibilities. And quite frankly, I don't know how it's going to play out in my life long term. And that's really hard. So that development um, in the past few years has meant that I'm actually hanging on to a lot of anger these days towards yeah. my stepfather because um, he was released after three years from Colony Farm. 
Um, so it's now been almost nine years that he's been released back into society. He has a job. He takes care of his adult children and their children. Um, and um, from the outside looking in, as I don't currently have contact with him, it kind of feels like everything's a-okay in Trevor's world. And that's really hard for me because my life has never been the same and my mental health has never been okay since this. So I can't imagine taking someone I love out of the world and taking them away from the people that they love and ending their life and then being able to trek back out into the workforce three years later and, um, you know, seem, seem okay, you know? Yeah, that's so tough. And, and there is really no, there's no answer to that when you reconcile somebody moving through a psychosis period and then out of one. I mean, I just don't have a thorough understanding of what that is, so I won't speak to it. But what I wanted to just kind of put like a, almost like I'm, I'm seeing in my mind, like parentheses around this really important mm-hmm. thing, but it's almost like I want to hug you at the same time. I can't, I think it might've been one of the most profound revelations I've ever had on this podcast that you just said, forgiveness comes and goes. The forgiveness comes and goes. And I am like having kind of a goosebump moment as I'm listening to you say that, because in all of the work I've done in all of the kind of stories that I've heard, there's always been some understanding. I think that we either have to forgive or we don't forgive. It's this Mm -hmm. black and white concept of I forgive you and therefore I can move forward and forgiveness is for me and all of that kind of diatribe and, or I don't forgive you. And here is why, because there's anger. And I really think this is, this is so big, Alex, what you've just kind of given us here as a gift, which is we might just have permission to allow forgiveness to be as flexible as our anger tends to be and as our emotions also tend to be and as our lives tend to be because nothing is permanent frankly nothing is permanent and that may be just the through line of your entire story frankly but um thank you for that well i'm i'm so appreciative to be here and so grateful that in my ramblings you know something sticks and and feels meaningful as there's I just feel so much pressure to um, say say something that helps or, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. relieves a little bit of pain that other people might be going through or just reminds them that they're not alone. And um, yeah, I just, I just never want to lose the opportunity to help whenever possible. Yeah. And I think you are helping. I think I'll validate that for you. The, your ramblings, as you call them. <laughs> they're very much ramblings in my head, as I said, Frank. <laughs> Yeah. And there's, but there's so much going on for you too. And I think that's, that is what happens when it comes to trauma and pain and storytelling and answers that are not concrete. There is no concrete answer here. It's, we don't get to a final place in our life, whether or not we've had any trauma at all, or whether we've just lived a very um, kind of easy peasy life. And we're looking for just success or career growth or a certain goal, or we're trying to meet a certain anything anything at all, you don't get to that place and then stop. You don't get to that place and then there's no more movement. It's like life continues every single second, as you say, every second, every new breath is a new experience. And that intertwines with all of the past experiences, whether we like it or not. So I think the message I'm hearing and what I love about this is that healing is really just a constant daily task. It's being in the process of healing versus feeling like we are healed Mm -hmm. and noticing that you can tell a story that you can write a book with the wisdom that you have gained to this point and not feel this insurmountable pressure that you have to know everything about what that future is going to look like and whether or not you're at some, you know, high level wisdom that you can just start sprinkling over the world and say, this is how it's going to be. And this is how it should be. It's really about saying, this is who I am now. And in this moment, you felt called to share this story in this way to to really take your time with it and show compassion, which I, I, I obviously love because mental health is part of my story, show compassion for people who struggle with mental health and not stigmatize it. And to do such 
due diligence around that emotionally and to put such care and energy into destigmatizing mental health is such a gift. It really, really is a gift. So the book is called Dragonfly Tides. Yes. Can you tell me why the title Dragonfly Tides? Yeah. Um, so growing up, my mom and the women in our family are known for having a temper. So the running joke for years had been that we are fire breathing dragons. So as time went on, um, it was probably actually a couple months before my mom passed away that this topic came up. And for some reason I said, well, the only, the closest animal to that is a dragonfly. So um, there was that little piece there that it was like, oh, well, that's, you know, that's our animal. That's what we are, right? Um, and then in the weeks that my mom, after my mom passed away, um, I was given gifts and there was just things that came up that were all related to dragonflies. And this went on for years of these connections and these pieces coming together. And eventually it just became a um, representation of my mom to me was dragonflies. So every time I saw one out and about, it was like they would just pop up at the exact right time when I needed it. And this actually happened about two weeks ago. Um, I started horseback riding last year and I was doing my very first jump clinic. Um, so it was a group class and I was so nervous. I was sitting there shaking, waiting to go in. And um, this was mid this would, yeah, mid-October at this point, and um, all of a sudden this dragonfly, and I haven't seen one in months, flies through the outdoor arena, and uh, and it just kind of like hovers in the air in front of my eye line, and I was just like, okay, yep, I see you, thank you, thank you for letting me know that everything's going to be okay, and I can let go of some of this anxiety of things going horribly wrong, because everything's going to be all right, mm -hmm. and to this day, I just feel like dragonflies pop up in those moments when I really need to know that everything's going to be okay and there's several of those stories written about in the book wow. um and then in the years afterwards about two years ago um somebody else mentioned to me that their mom um is like shows up for them in dragonflies and I was like oh that's so weird so does mine like does that come from any place in particular and I actually learned then after 10 years of having this like personal message that dragonflies actually in general represent the spirits of our loved ones coming back to visit us. Wow. Um, and I just thought that was the coolest connection and, you know, something that I just thought was such a personal thing for years actually is a um, general experience or un like, what's the word? Um, a belief, a general belief. Um, and I just thought that was really beautiful. And um and the second half of the title, Tides, um, comes from the fact that um, very much like how we talked about, about nothing is permanent, um, that's how I kind of felt life was growing up. Um, so there's a conversation that I wrote about in the book also where my mom and I are talking about life is like an ocean and there's big waves and small waves, but they're always constant. And um, so big trauma, little trauma, <laughs> but it's always constant. Um, yeah, right. Um, and I like I laugh quite a bit about this stuff. But honestly, it's because if you don't laugh, you'll cry. And uh, it's just kind of how I've managed a lot of this stuff is a very dark sense of humor and um, lots of hope for the future. Um, so that's where the title comes from is uh, there's a lot of water and dragonfly references throughout the book. Um, and it just felt like it was the perfect, um, yeah, a perfect symbolic name for it. I love that. Uh, I just love all of that. I love you. I love this story. Can we end on this note? Cause we're, we're getting yeah. to that wrap time, but I really want to end on this. Can you just tell me a little bit about your mom? I feel like I want to know who oh, she was. Oh gosh. My mom was the kind of person who, um, so if you were out running errands, you would know that she was in the same store as you because of her laugh. Oh, I love it. And this happened on more than one occasion to her. Um, she had bright, fiery red hair, and it was so coppery and beautiful. And just the way you would walk into a room and the way that she would embrace you and welcome you. Um, she was known for having the bit, biggest bear hugs. And, um, you know, whenever we went to like the hair salon or somewhere like that, she always called um, like the owner boss. So it'd be like, hey, boss, how are you today? And um, she was just so warm and she put everyone around her at ease 
And uh, that's actually one of the things that I'm always so in awe of her to this day is like, I don't know how she was so warm and welcoming and personable with every single person she met. Um, and she was just one of those people who I, I just, I just feel like she was sunshine in a person. Um, and uh, just warm. And when the sun comes down on you, you just, you feel embraced and you feel safe and comfortable. And um, she just really, truly was an incredible person. And she made such an impact on the people around her. And um, I just hope that I can do her memory justice. Well, I think you are. There's no question in my mind, the way that you put us at ease talking about incredibly complex and difficult topics. I mean, even myself, I talk about this stuff all the time. And I disclosed to you right before we started recording that I have been kind of battling a migraine today. And so I was in this, I was in my head actually, before we started recording saying how much I wanted to honor the the bigness of your story um, in and the bigness of your mother's life and, and honor that. And I was thinking, oh, I'm not going to be able to frame out words. I'm going to have that brain fog. I'm in my headache and everything is going to get in the way of being able to properly interview you and moderate this conversation. And yet you have taken us in so many places. So I, at the end of this interview, I apologize to the listeners for anything I said that may have been inarticulate. Um, but Alex, I assure you, you have done this story a great deal of justice despite my shortcomings today. And I feel like I have learned so much from you, as I always do in conversation with you. There's always something that sticks with me, and I know that will be true. You are quite literally the sunshine, the warm hug that I needed today around this conversation, around just feeling okay sometimes with not really having a linear journey and having things come up and having to be compassionate to others where you don't really feel like you want to be and you can step in and out of forgiveness and you can embrace the angry moments. And then also just having this light on yourself and this mirror and saying there's some compassion for the, the fact that we're all at some point, either a 16 year old or a 17 year old or a five year old or a 25 year old or a 45 year old who deals with pain. And if we can just come together around some of these topics, then we can sort of move through them easier more mm -hmm. more easily together. Um, I do want to finish kind of, um, even though that would have been a beautiful way to wrap, I want to finish on something that you and I talked about the last time that we were in conversation. And it felt really important to say, and it felt like an important issue to you. And I don't want to leave a podcast recording with you without pointing this out, which is um, the impact of true crime podcasts on somebody who has actually been the victim of an actual true crime. Talk to me about your feelings around that and what it means to be on the receiving end of somebody else telling your story versus you telling your story. I think the easiest way to talk about this is for the listeners to think about the worst thing that's ever happened to them. So was it um, a moment of absolute embarrassment and you know things that you still cringe about later? Or was it losing somebody that you cared about or, um, you know, growing up, your dog got hit by a car whatever, whatever that pain is that still to this day, um, if you're lying awake at 2 a.m. and you can't sleep, um, what's eating at you? What is the thing that still to this day moves you to tears and that is a pain that you were never going to forget how much that hurt and then how much it affected how you move through the rest of your, your life or how you interacted with others. So for me, obviously, one of those big things is losing my mom to homicide. And true crime feels like having the worst thing that's ever happened to you put out in the world in the form of entertainment. And I can't, I, I really struggle to find the words that accurately describe um, how much that hurts and how I feel like there isn't, um, I feel like the work that I'm doing sometimes to share my story and to connect, um, I kind of feel like it's all being lost in translation sometimes when I see the way that we talk about true crime. Um, you know, there's always, there's always some meme that a friend of mine will share of being like, oh, I can't wait to like get home and relax and have a cozy blanket, glass of wine, sit in the tub and listen to stories about people being murdered, right? Like it's, it's just, 
Right. Um, and it, it feels so uncharacteristic for the people I know and for our bigger population of people who are loving and kind and care about others and move with empathy and compassion in their everyday life. And yet so um, mindlessly or without thought, um, come home and turn on um, documentaries of the latest um, serial killer series that's on Netflix right. or um, listen to murder podcasts. So like true crime um, podcast episodes while they're on the way to work to teach, you know, six-year-old kids. Like it just, it doesn't, something about it just doesn't compute for me with no, who I know these it. people are. Mm-hmm. and who the demographic is that consumes true crime it's middle-aged women like it's it's you know our traditional nurturer um primary parents the the people who um we stereotypically go to for um compassion and care and um nurturance in our society they're the primary consumers of true crime and um it really, it hits a button for me and it makes it hard to trust people sometimes when I see that they're so invested in this form of entertainment because at the end of the day, I don't feel that violence or losing somebody in such horrific ways can be entertaining. Yeah. Um, like, it's like, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm kind of I'm terming this loosely like secondary storytelling versus primary storytelling when we get to hear it from you, which is therapeutic for you. It's cathartic for you. It allows you, I mean, there's so much evidence about writing through trauma and storytelling through trauma and, and, uh, and through grief and even through joy, frankly, but just being able to own your story and being able to tell your story is like primary storytelling and this Mm -hmm. secondary storytelling with the exception of anything, of course, that's fictional. If you're telling a fictional story, it doesn't belong to anybody other than your imagination, theoretically, but to have somebody else kind of hijack that story, tell it in their way, and then um, potentially even profit from it. I can't imagine how mm-hmm. stomach turning that would be for someone in your situation. Um, thank you for sharing that. I think it is important to sort of just say, and nobody's asking you to stop listening to things that entertain you or bring you joy. What it, what we're saying is be aware here, just be yes. aware that this is a secondary story, not a primary story. It is yeah. not from the mouth of the person who experienced it. And therefore, I mean, this crosses so many contexts, but Therefore, it can't possibly be comprehensive. It can't possibly be um, the full scope. It can't be telling all of the lived experience of the people that are involved or the quote unquote characters in the story, right? Mm -hmm. So um, super important. So we're going to close out with my secrets are out segment, which we're doing in season three here. And just to maybe inject some of that beautiful laughter that your mother had and shared with the world. (laughs) Um, Just a couple of, of quick, quick questions whatever comes to mind just give me your gut response tell me first and foremost this may not be a funny one but how are you self-caring these days through all of the pandemic stuff and all of just your own anger and that comes up for you how are you self-caring I don't know how I would have gotten through this pandemic if I hadn't started horseback riding again I used to ride as a kid and I really urge people to think about what brought them joy when they were young and what have you let go of that you don't have time or the resources for or whatever, and um, see if you can add that back into your daily life in some way. I love that. What makes you laugh the biggest and hardest? Oh gosh, my husband. Um, (laughs) He brings a smile to my face every single day, and whether it's something he says in person or something he texts me while I'm at work or out and about. He just, he makes me laugh every single day. And uh, I'm so appreciative for him. I love that. And, and I'm saying you laugh at him or with him? Or with him. Or with him. <laughs> that too, but you know, <laughs> we don't need to focus on those pieces. <laughs> it just depends on the day, really. <laughs> exactly. I love that. Um, and the big question, what is next for author, speaker, advocate, Alex Schneider? Well, I am working on a second book. um, So that will be coming out because as we said, um, 
there is no ending to things. Um, so very much my book is just, it kind of ends about a couple of years after my mom passed away. And, um, and then the reader is just kind of left knowing that um, the main character is going to be okay, but not necessarily knowing what's going to happen next or what her healing is going to look like in the future. So I would really love to pick up where that book leaves off um, and cover, say, the next five years of what trauma recovery was like. And um, hopefully in-person events will be a thing again. So hopefully I can be in front of a room of you lovely people um, having these great conversations and sharing our stories and hopefully helping those around us. Yes, sharing our primary stories. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for being here and just being so unapologetically you. You are just a beautiful human being in every way imaginable. Uh, you can find Alex's book at dragonflytides.com. That is her website. Um, and definitely follow Alex as well on Instagram and Facebook at by Alex Snyder. That will all be in the show notes, of course. Uh, and Alex, you'll have to come back or get on a stage at some point and come talk more about all of this. You're just such a wise, wise person, whether or not that wisdom came through trauma or was just deeply embedded in who you were anyway. And then somehow this just gave us another like lens to showcase that brilliance. Um, I can assure you that no matter what your brain fog wants to tell you, you are a beautiful, beautiful storyteller and you really do and will continue to help tons of people by sharing this story. So thank you again for being a part of the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining this edit of the Unapologetic Stories podcast. If you're ready to share your truth and rewrite your personal life story, connect with me at unapologeticstories.com for all the details on speaker training, storytelling, and strategizing your way through this one big life. If you've enjoyed listening, we would love for you to leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast listening app or Apple Podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Unapologetic Anna for new speaker training start dates. Until next time, stay brave, stay unapologetic, and keep bringing in your truth.